0: Ray and Mark is stopping in before we start this week's episode to remind you that our new client, our new sponsor, One CBD, can help you in managing whatever little aches and pains you have in life.
2: We keep seeing the evidence about how CBD helps to manage the pain, and both Ray and I use it with medicinal to help really knock that pain out. And
0: that's why I was interested in hearing more about One CBD because they use all natural or organic strains. They remove the THC in a safe scientific way that gives you the purest CBD available.
2: And we've spoken with Ty Burgess, the CEO of One CBD, a few times. He uses it and he helped develop this product because of his personal health issues.
0: And his experience as a hospital CEO. He understands pain management and he put all that knowledge and experience into One CBD. Check them out. Their website is onecbd.com. That's O-N-E-C-B-D.com. I was surprised by the variety of products that they have. So it's not just, you know, tincture in a bottle with a dropper. There's gummies and all kinds of stuff. Go check them out at onecbd.com. And there's a code you can enter to save some money on your first purchase. Right, Marcus?
2: And that code for a nice discount is BALANCE. B-A-L-A-N-C-E. OneCBD.com. That's OneCBD.com for living your
0: best life. It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of
2: Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Kub. I'm Marcus in the Darkest.
0: And this time we want to talk about, I don't know, the Magnificent Moody's, the MB's. Didn't they have some other nicknames too?
2: had the Moody's is the one that I have heard the most. Just Moody's or the Moody's.
0: Well, that's what they became known as, the Moody's. And they have a fan club that are called the Moody's. And they're everywhere they go. And they have fans everywhere in the world. And uh, they self-identify as Moody's. That's awesome.
2: It really is. Seriously, when a band has their own self-identifying fan base that's rabid and passionate and large, that says tons about that band.
0: Yes, it does. And as a moody, (laughs) now you know what you're into on this episode of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Uh, When it comes to the moody blues, uh, the love is deep and it is usually very long. Uh depending upon people's age, their exposure to rock and roll, the people who come to the Moody Blues and have stayed with them usually don't leave no matter what once they have arrived there in the uh, fold, so to speak. As we go through, you're going to find out it wasn't a straight line for them. So there are some questions about timing. There are gaps. There's a period where they just didn't do anything for years. And then enjoyed a, a very vital second stanza, which a lot of bands don't get after taking a few years off. And uh, continued the legend that is the Moody Blues. That's what we're all about here on this episode of... Of the imbalanced history of rock and roll sponsored as always by crooked eye brewery and hapro check them out online at crookedeyebrewery.com well we've alluded to the importance of birmingham england in the progression of rock and roll in some ways the moody's were right there with the animals at the beginning of that history and that legacy Uh, Forming in 1964 in Birmingham, England, and some of the names that were in the band then are familiar to the longtime fans. Michael Pinder on keyboards and Ray Thomas, who is a wizard at so many things. But there were different guys involved. You had Clint Warwick at the beginning of the recorded era of the Moody Blues, and Denny Lane famously.
2: We've already said.
0: Of course, uh, he would go on later to join Wings with Paul McCartney and have a whole other career in rock and roll. Since And we can't go very far without mentioning Graham Edge, because Graham was the uh, drummer, but did so much more. Wrote beautiful poetry that became part of the fabric of the Moody Blues as they progressed. And I think at this point, he is the sole remaining member, active member, uh, still in the fold, even though they haven't really done much in quite some time.
2: You know... No, I don't. Tell me. (laughs) Let
0: me ask you a question. Yeah. When you look at progressive rock as a whole, what do the Moody Blues mean to you in the Pantheon of progressive bands?
2: Before I started doing this podcast, they were a part of the progressive rock group, but they always seemed to be outsiders for some reason, and I never knew why they encompass more psychedelia which you can feel and hear in their music and their lyrics right Um, openly openly and preparing for this episode i learned a little bit more about the in-depth stories behind that versus some of the other prog rockers in the business where they were a lot more straight edge and the moody blues were very open about their use of psychedelia to expand the mind and to question things but then to tell stories in a bizarre yet beautiful way in song visionary in a
0: lot of ways very much let's stop up because you mentioned straight edge and what you're thinking of as straight edge then is different from what straight edge would be considered today Yeah, i don't know i think when i listen to some of the other early progressive bands um i hear a lot of trippy stuff in there too so it's tough to say but i think the whole concept of progressive rock Spins off of the idea of getting away from the norm, doing your thing, however far out it gets, and then finding a way to come back a little bit, kind of like acid trips.
1: Just relax and get some rest. Absolutely,
2: and if you and if you think about it in the whole rock and roll family tree, as far as rock and roll goes, it is the most free form of rock and roll there is out there. Jazz also. Not in the traditional, but in the rock idea. and roll. We, yeah, it's, it's a, a jazz, jazz idea, idea
0: applied to rock and roll or rock
2: yeah. music. Because each different musician goes into different places, yet they all flow together. And it's very spontaneous in the way that jazz is, and it's very. And if you listen to bands like Dream Theater, you hear it. You hear it in King Crimson. You're hitting on
0: something that may be integral to why the Moody Blues were such a success story and why their music impacted so many people because they are diverse. They're very different. You have original members. Uh, you know, Pinder was a keyboardist who didn't just want to sit there and play piano and church organ type stuff. He was an experimenter. Uh, You've got a guy like Graham Edge who was the drummer, but was also a brilliant poet.
1: Cold-hearted orb that rules the night, removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion pinprick holes in a colourless sky let insipid figures of light pass by the mighty light of ten thousand suns challenges infinity and is soon gone night time to some a brief interlude to others the fear of solitude brave Helios wake up your steeds bring the warmth countryside minutes.
0: and this is in the original form and then Ray Thomas could pretty much do anything and even in the later years of the band when he wasn't writing or singing much on the new albums what he brought to the stage with his performance especially on the classic stuff was indispensable you couldn't do it without him until of course he decided they were going to have to do it without him and he retired a
1: simple man had the strangest dream stood in a garden of flowers that overlooked the sea, and then sailing by what is his truth and his love. sense his power so will turn with the tide to go home.
0: They were an amazing group of guys and when they were starting out there was so much talent in, in the group Poor Pinder fell in love with the Mellotron and started dicking around with his and the tapes in there to make it more like what he wanted from the sounds he felt in his head to get out there. You called them a failed blues act or something like that. Whatever the chemistry kit was, they put out one album as the Magnificent Moody's in the UK and in America it was called Go Now Moody Blues Number no. One. So that was a typical different country, territory type handling of the music. But whatever it was, they had Go Now was a hit. They had some success. It all just started to fall apart when it came down to it and uh, they changed members. That led to a change in the texture of the music at a time when orchestral textures and different sounds and approaches opening things up. Uh, maybe inspired by Dr. Timothy Leary's uh, prescription, <laughs> uh, but they they got out there, and that's what led them to end up in the situation where they're looking to bring in uh, different guys. And we'll get into how uh, Justin Hayward and John Lodge come in, and of course, their creative instincts and their voices absolutely indispensable to what would become that trademark Moody Blue sound through the rest of the '60s and into the '70s and beyond.
2: The fact that uh, Justin Hayward originally had sent his vocal tape to the Animals and Eric Burden was like, "Here, let me uh, give it to these guys," and oh, he gave happened? it to I the uh, he gave it to the Moody Blues, oh. and the Moody Blues were like, "Hey, this is the sound we're looking for." So every
0: now and then that happens in rock and roll. You it's know? funny how
2: many of those we've come across where people just have this feeling or this thing, and they go with it, and it works.
0: And that is the thing that is almost impossible to put your finger on before you're in the middle of doing it or listening to it or being you know
2: involved in it it doesn't seem like music today is nearly that way there's not as much of that thing in the music or in the development or in how things come together that there was back then. And I don't know if that's I a societal thing. I think the term thing. you're looking for is organic. Yeah.
0: And I see some of it and I'm encouraged, but not enough of it. I know yeah. what you're saying. Wheels were turning around the the time when the Moody Blues got Justin Hayward and John Lodge into the band. Other things were happening. They were trying to figure out a way forward, but they had a problem. They owed the label. They owed them on the advances for the not-so-successful first record. And they were trying to figure out how they were going to fulfill the contract and move forward. So now the label that they had been recording with and contracted with, Derham had developed their own stereophonic tweak. And they wanted to use one of the albums that they released on the label as kind of like a here's our thing, our stereo sound thing. And they made a deal with the Moody Blues, the new Moody Blues, that if you did this record and did it the way we want to do it, we'll kind of look the other way on the money you owe us, and then we'll move forward. So they kind of agreed to it. They were brought the concept of doing a rock and roll version of Dvorak's New World Symphony. And they got together to work with a a guy with a, a local orchestra, and they made it sound fancy because it was the London Festival Orchestra, which was really just the guys they put together for these sessions to record this album, which was kind of a funny little way to come to making one of the landmark albums don't you think?
2: Yeah, a new sound. They try a completely new, innovative style. They really get bold with the classical music out front, whereas you hear the classical influence in rock and roll, but putting it this far out front the way they did and tying it into the song structure and weaving it in and out the way they do. And that's
0: Peter Knight, who was doing all the stuff with the orchestra. He was also writing the interlude music, and they were working together pretty closely to make this project work. I guess everybody had something riding on it, not knowing that they were making one of the all-time great classic albums.
2: The way these musicians back in those days had the freedom to find that sound that was in their head that they couldn't get exactly right with the equipment they had, but they had to tweak it and adjust it is remarkable because you don't see that nearly as much as you used to it seems like it had to have been them working together to make it here
0: and that was behind Michael Pinder reworking his Mellotron and trying to expand the the, the sonic universe that would happen on the future records as well they're all tinkerers but exactly and so here they are they're in the middle of this thing they, they Kind of have to do to make things work, and it's going to help them to get past it and move forward. Obviously, when you look at what came next in the Moody Blues album catalog, they had some plans: Sonic Takeover, Psychedelicized, Paint It Up, Paint the Bus, Psychedelic. Yeah, it's all good. Um, but they had to get this thing right, and so they did, and they worked very closely with Knight to get the whole thing done. And initially. Uh, it wasn't as big of a success as it would eventually become. Success breeds success. And what would happen in the next few albums, starting with In Search of a Lost Chord, would refocus people back and they would have a hit with Nights in White Satin in 1972, years after the album had been released and already had been
2: a thing you know i was real young during that time period but it seems that over the decades you've seen some of these songs have these uh, resurgences in popularity whether it be relevance to an event that has happened whether it be putting it in a soundtrack of a movie whether it be right, something sometimes like that, that happens that's so. right
0: but in this case it was people rediscovering an album that was already established to whatever degree that it was
1: nights in white satin never reaching the end letters i've written Uh,
0: they build off the orchestral work that the Beatles had done and then try to move to the next level and then along the way inspiring other people to take their chains off and do things in ways that they felt that they maybe were afraid to do because look, these guys are trying shit out in public and calling it an album. And by the way, it's a pretty goddamn good album.
2: It's a pretty great album. I got to revisit it quite a bit. And another factoid about the album that is important is it's the first pop or rock record to be recorded in stereo and that makes a big difference
0: very important too it is the sign-on point for tony clark who produces the album and then would become basically the sixth moody through all those albums that you've been listening to over the last week or so we've both been listening to (laughs) that's tony at the helm and he's steering that cosmic bus man and some of the places they go were unheard of before they went there they were really exploring Pioneers in in some way because they were out there in places conceptually and sonically that not a a lot of people had gotten to go to yet.
2: Even uh,
0: flying higher and further and all that than the Beatles at times.
2: But like with every other band that draws on its influences, were there bands that were doing that type of stuff in a small way in those areas that they were drawing influence from at that time? Or were they taking the Beatles type of stuff and saying,
1: oh, if I could do
2: this and then... A lot of it was being done by new bands. And the seeds were
0: being sown out there. They really were. Pink Floyd had started in 1965, but they were more of what you would call a classic psychedelic band. You know, Arnold Lane, those songs were kind of poppy and tight, like two, three minute longs, a lot of lyrics. Not at all what would come later for Pink Floyd. And that was until Sid's departure. Gilmore's entry led to 1968's Saucer Full of Secrets. They were moving that way. Now, Jethro Tull had been around as other names and as Jethro Tull before, but they hadn't yet released an album genesis formed in 1967 but wouldn't release their first album until 1969 you and i were talking about king crimson the first uh, king crimson record that they were around but they wouldn't release that until 69 but in 1967 early in the year Procol Harum debut and they were a combination of rock and orchestral sounds and i would consider them to be among the other founders of progressive rock whiter shade of pale was a big single here in the u.s and in the uk uh with minimal promotion, actually, it just kind of dropped and went crazy. It wasn't part of the U.K. release initially and was added later. Yeah. yeah. Ten million singles, though, they yeah. sold in the
2: U.K. That's crazy. That's
0: crazy.
1: We skip the line.
2: That's totally crazy. What about bands like The Nice? Keith Emerson in the early days, he released an album in 67 as well. The Thoughts of Jack. Dayjack.
0: Uh, the Nice, I think, was formed in 67, but I don't think they released in 67. And Vandergraff Generator, uh, they were released in 69. By the way, they were the first band ever released on Charisma Records, which would was- be. Have some famous bands on it over the years. Gong also formed in '67, but they didn't put out an album until 1970. Soft Machine was around. They started playing in '66, uh, but they were more of a jazz rock fusion band at that point. By the time they came all the way around to full blown progressive and were releasing albums, it was the '70s. Apparently, I didn't know this until we started looking into it. Chas Chandler was their producer, and he kind of pushed them towards the progressive rock sound that Soft Machine became more famous for, uh, starting in 1968. So i'm doing all this timeline shit because i want to know like when this came out in 67 how many how much of the stuff that we just talked about that's on this sheet had already been done where were all these bands and where all these projects and stuff where were they at so Really, the only one that had really come out of the starting gate at all at that point was Procol Harum.
2: These bands weren't practicing this stuff live in clubs. There's no way that they could have been sitting in live clubs playing these the, music.
0: this stuff, you mean?
2: Like the progressive musicians, like the King Crimson's in their early phases and stuff like that, all developing right. their sound. They had to be in a practice space going full-on you know, crazy with their sound or in, an, that in somebody's basement. That would be
0: an basement. interesting podcast episode to talk about
2: how Progressive
0: got from the
2: basement, right,
0: Yeah, into the clubs and beyond. We should look into that. We should definitely look fun, into that. We that.
2: have to do more about prog rock because of the, its importance. I mean, Genesis and their evolution as hardcore prog Sure, to that's what why they we're became. here at the
0: beginning right now looking at this album, which was meant to be done as a, a deal-maker-breaker promo for a new technology that turned in to be the, maybe the centerpiece between what was happening before they released and what it was happening after. True. Despite that, it took for fucking ever for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to recognize them because we use that in our conversations with Neanderthal mm-hmm. to judge whether somebody should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did music change from before they were there and until after? And the, when you look at the Moody Blues, their fans were saying
2: yes about it They for, should have been decades. in the inaugural class because of that.
0: In some ways, you know, it was a
2: shame that they had to wait so long. Yeah, it really was. What do you say we uh, step on up to the bar and grab a nice cold pint?
0: I may have to take the growler in and get it filled. You know how it's
2: going.
0: (laughs) Well, Marcus, we can't go to Crooked Eye to have a brew just yet, as we are still in isolation mode. And the boys at Crooked Eye have been busy, man. They've been in construction mode.
2: What have they been building
0: in construction mode? They've been building a stage with soundproofing. Oh, the Crooked Eye Band is going to be so happy when they open the brew pub in Hapro. While you can't go into the brewery now, they are doing live online performances in the Crooked Eye spirit. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. And we salute Pete and Paul and Jeff. They keep brewing and they keep pouring, even though they can't let you in to sit and sit. And one of the cool things they're still brewing, Marcus, is you can not only get your growler filled, they've got 32-ounce growlers and 16-ounce singles and four-packs. So you can still get your crooked eye fix during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sweet.
2: That's very cool that they're able to uh, not only refill your growlers, but give you those crowler cans or four-packs if you so desire, because you don't want to knock back an entire big growler in one sitting. Right in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye Brewery. Can't wait to get there and have one in person
0: and we thank them for supporting us through this whole nightmare that we've been dealing with here with the
2: pandemic thank you to crooked eye right in the heart of hatboro you have been amazing thank you we're back on the
0: imbalanced history of rock and roll this episode all about the Moody Blues, and I found something uh, during the break, I found something that uh, helped me to figure out what I wanted to say earlier before we broke, and that was about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. The guys took the the, the high road with it at the ceremony, but it was really fucked up because one of the stars we lost that year in memoriam, the in memoriam section that they show at every ceremony, was Ray Thomas of the moody blues and it underlines that not losing time to get people who deserve to be in the rock and roll hall of fame in because sometimes they don't make it until the powerful and mighty decided that, it, that it's their turn
2: so. Yeah, it's, it's a shame that sometimes that the committee makes those decisions late the way they do Yep. Makes you question. Recurring theme. I did a little bit of research during the break. Yeah. and Boy, we've been busy. Yeah, we've been busy. Our break was very short, but it was spent very smartly.
1: Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the Nice released their first album in 67 called The Thoughts of Emerless Dabjack and their second album in 68, which means they got together and popped an album out real quickly. Well, thanks for
0: digging in while we had a minute to think about it. You bet me. All part of the uh, equation here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll is off kilter as it might be sometimes. Here we are talking about the moody blues, and it's the uh, end of the Denny Lane era and uh, the beginning of uh, the, uh, the era that would include John Lodge, who had... Tried to be in this band before, and he was still in school, and it wasn't working out. So he came to uh, join them from a band that they were all in together before called El Riot. Uh, He found himself uh, in the company of one Justin Hayward, who you mentioned how he got onto the radar, so to speak. And they moved forward. They began creating music that became legendary. We talked a lot there in the first half about Days of Future Past. And that's kind of where the real journey begins for them, because a lot of great things happen right after that
2: during the break i had a, another thought and we had talked about them playing live over the years and kind of doing things their way which is remarkable when bands are fortunate enough to be able to do it their way because then you get the truest feel for who they are but I have a lot of friends who have taken their kids to see the Moody Blues Orchestra concerts in Colorado and cool. States. So they're one of those bands who, like, when they do the Disney music in orchestra style, the Moody Blues is another one of those that is very popular amongst families. During the last week getting ready for this, I got to turn my son on to the Moody Blues, and he really enjoyed Nights in White Satin. I think the uh, strings at the beginning kind of grabbed oh, his attention. Oh, so beautiful.
0: You get into and- the... And and the way they transitioned from song to song and part of the day to part yeah. of the day uh, really gave you that different kind of feeling than you were used to getting from an album, really. Absolutely. And it still works that way.
2: Oh, absolutely. And revisiting this album this past week and listening to it front to back the way you're supposed to listen to an album, really it really highlighted and it, it really brought back the feeling of how great they were when we were younger, right. you know? Well...
0: I understand that all too well. (laughs)
2: Because
0: I remember when they came out with In Search of a Lost Chord, and it kind of blew up. It was 1968, and it had this little song called legend of a mind which became huge not so much on the top 40 but all these fm stations were sure playing a lot of the moody blues Mm -hmm. uh, especially from that album in search of a lost chord and you know uh, the inclusion of timothy leary directly it starts to point to what their direction is i think it's further and up And they do that with a lot of the music that they're making, even on that album, okay? They they were inspired to do uh, the George Harrison thing. George, they had been with the Maharishi and all this stuff. So it was like acid plus Transcendental Meditation equals Aum. And that's that's the song that wraps up the album, In Search of the Lost Chord. They really were on a journey to look for the chord, the missing chord that would make everyone feel that Aum, to feel that centered positivity and that's the ride they were on
2: fueled by acid oh absolutely definitely hallucinogenics involved but they didn't seem to be very destructive with their use of hallucinogenics more more it seemed like from what i read as well and from what you feel in their music is that they had this vision the hallucinogenics help them find and complete that vision by getting them to where they needed to get to and to find that music.
0: In part one, we were talking about the combination of Graham Edge's poetry and Mike Pender reading it and uh, all that kind of stuff. And that kind of combination at the very beginning as they start to play departure. And it rises. The, the drama, and it all rises into Ride My Seesaw.
1: silent sound. So smell or touch the something inside that we need so much, the sight of a touch or the scent of a sand or the strength of an oak with roots deep in the ground, the wonder of flowers to be covered and then to burst up through tarmac to the sun again, or to fly to the sun without burning a wing, to lie in a meadow and hear the grass sing, to have all these things in our memories.
0: you're feeling psychedelicized at that point you're reaching lift off with the band right there i think that was part of the experience of this band they wrote songs that fit the times they really did even in their later years so then they come back in 69 with another great album on the threshold of a dream not knowing how prophetic it might
2: be that's even crazier we were finding that with so many albums from that time period how they're relevant and even more relevant today than when they were written. It's almost like there was this psychic future uh, vision in their albums. And I know that people are like, what the fuck is that guy on?
0: Well, I'll tell you what, he's not on LSD, which was fueling a lot of stuff. That album, Threshold of a Dream, included a great Justin Hayward classic. Lovely to see you. So simple and British, right? Lovely to see you, but behind it, everything that's working around it, Dear Diary and Lazy Day, these are great songs that are dripping in psychedelia. And by then, you know, with the launch of the Derham stereo, the label has now got them, right? And they do In Search of a Lost Chord, Threshold of a Dream. What could be better than to reward your big band by giving them their own label? No one else had done it but the Beatles. It must have felt like, an amazing development for them okay we'll, we'll you take it because you see them all standing there talking to the head of durham records going
2: what <laughs> exactly you want us to have our own label wow well, okay twist our rubber arm hey, 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 hey. we're done we're in that's the kind of impact they were
0: making buddy mm-hmm. and that's like right around 69 70 and then it starts to get real bongosophical to our children's children's children one day i stopped there and i was a little high and I, I try to think, my children's children would be my grandchildren in there. Grand- so it'd be my children's great-grandchildren. No, my children's grandchildren. And I just stopped because I was listening to music and I was probably really high. Uh, higher and higher, as the opening track of the album would say. Ironic. And you see uh, Pinder, you know, really flying. He's really got these keyboards. He's been working on stuff, taking all of his keyboard rig to other levels so that he can drive the cosmic bus a little further and higher that's where they were i mean there they there they are at the turn of into the 70s and around that time um the youth culture had started to embrace mother earth earth day was born and we started to become more environmentally conscious more conscious in general some of it may be fueled by the lsd or the mushrooms or whatever the hell they were taking uh, but generally speaking, I think people of a younger generation at the time started to embrace that there was going to be a future. And to have there be a future, our rivers had to stop burning when they got, you know, came in contact with a, a spark. That had happened
2: in Pittsburgh. Yes, that had happened in a lot of Midwest cities.
0: That's the culture we're in the middle of when the Moody Blues are taking off. And then they deliver what really got them on AM radio in a big way. was the single from A Question of Balance, Justin Hayward's Question. Now, what they did was they took the album version and they did a single version out of it. I don't even know if it was a different recording or what, but it made it a top 40 hit and took them to a whole new level.
2: Prague was actually doing at that time real well on FM radio, and they were part of that Prague family, so they were getting a lot of spins everywhere. But to be able to cross over like that, did that have an impact on them as far as the Prague or the psychedelic Prague crowd or whatever, You know, the FM it did, radio crowd, because they weren't labeled at that time?
0: As somebody who had feet in both camps, I would have to say, I don't know, because I wasn't worried about that. But I think that when bands that FM rock was playing started to get really, really popular, they didn't see it as, uh, oh, fuck them, they're big now. They saw it as a point of pride. Oh, everybody else finally caught on to a band we've been playing for three years or two years. Interesting, the shift. This episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is Ray and Marcus talking about the Moody's, or as they tried to call themselves at the beginning, the Magnificent Moody's. And uh, it turned out pretty magnificently, but the whole concept of the band changed. And here we are in the middle of talking about uh, the 70s, Moody Blues, man. They were all about the 70s. Well, oh, yeah. California sound was happening with the Eagles and all, Jackson Brown and all that stuff. There's this feel of progressive rock just taking over, most of it from England. Uh, we talked about a couple of the bands. We had, let's add Yes and Genesis in, if we haven't already. And uh, King
2: Crimson, we've King mentioned. Crimson.
0: And so this whole thing is happening. So there's developing a group of fans of this kind of music. It isn't just like, oh, I like them or I like them. There are a lot of people who are going to all their shows or four out of five of their bands they're into, right? So that's happening as they're becoming incredibly popular. And right around that time, they get a gift, really, I guess, from uh, 1972 uh, when Knights in White Satin becomes a hit, a real hit again. So Maybe right in there, somebody at the record company realized, we got hey, we got to hit record with this question. Yeah. Let's see if we can't make it something with the Knights in Set. <laughs> I don't then, know. The British record guys talk like that? I don't, perhaps know. Perhaps I don't I know. I don't know. I was talking, too young to know back maybe then. Maybe I should be talking more like Salary.
2: Maybe. And I wonder if they wore wigs, too, like the Barristers. <laughs> I don't think record so. Record wigs.
0: Um, you, you played instruments, right?
2: Yeah, piano. Do
0: you know what EGBDF is, don't you? Well, so did the Moody Blues, and they used the uh, basis for music understanding to name their next album every good boy deserves favor and they hit again with the song from justin hayward story in your eyes great song right great song And the Pinder keeps innovating, using a new instrument from Chamberlain in place of his Mellotron. Because, you know, the problem with the Mellotron always was the tapes wore out. So you had to keep making new tapes. Like, you know, I'm talking about the kind of tape we'd record on, like probably quarter inch, right? And you had to keep replacing them. And if they crinkled or got messed up in transit, So that's why everything started to go more towards other electronic instruments and why Moog became and so popular. Moog yeah.
2: blew up. ELO was one of the bands that really did so much with Moog and take it to the next Keith Emerson before yeah. that,
0: though. Keith Emerson was like, yeah, give me that shit. I'm going to show you what to do with it. He mm-hmm. was one of the first big names getting into you know, playing the Moog. After a pretty good success level and a nice long run, they do an album called Seventh Sojourn that would be their last album for quite some
2: time i have no idea what caused them we definitely have to look into that when we do a more detailed episode i'll bet you the moody's Moody's
0: will tell us on our facebook page it's the imbalanced history of rock and roll on facebook i'm sure moody's are listening and going i'm going to tell them right now and that's what we want thank you very much yes so 72 they release seventh soldier and they have a great run with that and then it will be six years until they put out another record I do want to quickly jump back and talk about Threshold Records because of what it means to the Moody Blues as a band, as, as uh, innovators, as uh, groundbreakers, because really before that, only the Beatles had their own label. The Stones didn't have their own label yet, and it would be years before Zeppelin would be at the level where they would get their own label. But there it is, and you know what that means when you get your own imprint, right?
1: <laughs>
2: yep, you make a lot more money. Yeah, get a bigger slice of that pie. And that's always a nice thing.
0: I figured Darren was already making enough money, so they realized that that was the best thing to do. And it worked for a while, but eventually, you know, uh, like we talked about, they decided to hang it up after 72 for any number of reasons. But based on that initial run of work from uh, 67, even 65, you can go back to the original songs were pretty good. Mm But all the way through to Seventh Sojourn, that's why the Moody's, the fan base, has been so adamant and so vocal, so loud for so long. And finally, in 2018, after Ray passes away, they get in, and that's stuck in the Moody's craw, the collective Moody's craw. And I know you're going to be shocked, Marcus, but going back to the root of this, guess who didn't get the Moody Blues?
2: That's right. Rolling Stone magazine. Why am I shocked by that? They didn't get Led Zeppelin one either. And they didn't get a lot of uh, incredible first albums. I don't think they got Jimi Hendrix either. And so, whatever. Yeah,
1: they can get it, whatever. It's a
2: big whatever. Yeah, big whatever. But think about that time from 65 or 67 to 72 when the Moody Blues were really just putting out some brilliant, brilliant music. It was heavy, it was deep, it was spacey, it was out there, it was innovative. And they had been working so hard between the putting together the music and the uh, live shows. I'm guessing they probably hit a burnout phase. But still wanted to stay connected to the music so they handled the business affairs
0: and they probably done well enough to do that so there's a time there when everybody's doing their little solo things and uh, none of it seemed acrimonious or anything like that but somewhere in the late 70s they got the itch and it was time to reform and they started writing and they also made some really good music octave is a really good album it's got a lot of great songs on it they got them back on the radio because the atmosphere in American radio uh, in 1978 was uh, still relevant to the, the bands of the 60s and early 70s who hadn't moved so far forward without them that they weren't relevant. And they also brought in some great music on off the octave record, right? And then after that, Michael Pinder, who had moved to California during the break, Decided that he didn't want to be running back and forth, I guess, between California and London and didn't really want to do it all anymore. And he decides to retire from the business. I guess he thought that he was still going to play on the album, so they had a little bit of a sore point at one point down the road. But Patrick Mraz had become available after leaving Yes. He was the keyboard player when I saw Yes uh, for the first time. And so once he became available, uh, they brought him on board and he injected his style, a uh, little more keyboard uh, electronica sound moving forward from there into uh, Long Distance Voyager, which I think is one of the uh, reunion era records. Long Distance Voyager is the best. I was listening to it a lot in the last week and it just keeps driving home. You know, uh, Marisa came walking in at one point. She goes, Oh, I loved this song in high school. And I suddenly felt old. You know, I mean, these guys toured all over, and they've done some live stuff. Some There's lots of packages out there, but I, with this band more than just about anybody, I'll be level with you. See what I did there? Yeah. You, you have to really go get the original albums in Their original order, their original context with the songs and the textures of it to really feel what we're talking about here about these Moody Blues albums and about the concept of albums in general. But Moody Blues is a good example where certain albums, you you just did not listen to them in sequence. You're not going to feel it the
2: same way. And we've both mentioned this throughout the podcast. I would say, if you can, get the CD pop it in or listen to it on vinyl and listen to it in a wave file versus an mp3 which is condensed and compressed on any of your streaming services because it
0: doesn't in, sound as good on your Spotify or your uh, or your Alexa it's just not going to
2: it's there's a fullness and a depth to it when you hear it in the waveform that's layered the or way on it is. vinyl.
1: The, yeah,
0: It really connects better on vinyl, but what we're trying to get you to do is listen to albums and the moody blues are all about the albums. They weren't the uh, big single waving hits hitsters. Yeah. You know, they were about making albums conceptually, even when there wasn't a connective tissue concept. So, yeah. And a little bit of that kind of spilled over to the reunion years. You know, you get uh, the other side of life, which is a little philosophical, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, a guy we talk about all the goddamn time, Tony Visconti comes into the picture. He starts working with the Moody Blues right around that time On uh, and, and, and with a guy named Barry Radman, who was working with Meraz. Uh He was a synth programmer, so he came in with him. I know you're shaking your head a little bit because it's one of the last places you'd expect to find him, but there he is. But and-
2: Tony Visconti's got to tie into prog rock because he worked on sure. the King Crimson album in the Court of the Crimson King for one day, and he could not handle where it was going and didn't get what it was about and was like, nope. You can't told do me it.
0: that the other day, and then when I found this little factoid while I was reading I can't wait to get in Marcus's head's like, gonna explode.
2: What? Totally, because <laughs> he walked away. But and something that I read in one of the uh progressive rock history uh articles that I had read is there was a lot of uh I don't know if uh what the right word is, but there was a lot of lack of respect from the other prog bands to the moody blues because of their number one, their open use of psychedelia and the fact that they were really, able to that- yeah, yeah, I mean there were, were some all of those tripping. guys but Come some on. of those guys no I'm telling you it, it was in one of the articles I read and I I will post the article on our page that, okay, cool. that mentioned it and I will even uh, pull that part out but also the fact that they were able to reproduce their sound live so much easier then the other prog bands were caused a little bit of an issue with uh, some of the other bands.
0: Wow, I'd never heard of that as a concept, but I guess it's possible. I'm just not aware of
2: it. Because I'll tell you the truth, when
0: it comes to their their sound, nobody could do out Pink Floyd Floyd, and nobody could out Genesis Genesis. So I want to see that article, though, because I'm always interested in learning. If I don't know something, I want to read about it and see what's going on there. They made more records, and they had more projects. Sarah LaMere came out in 1988, and it had the uh, big Justin Hayward song, I Know You're Out There Somewhere. Kind of like how life continued to progress down the road for them Personally, it was happening in song. They went from being the cosmic pioneers
2: to
1: "I know you're out
2: there somewhere" mm-hmm.
0: because it's how life changes sometimes. You know,
2: think about this: they were one of the only prog- progressive bands that was able to easily slide into top forty in rock radio. Whereas in the late seventies, progressive rock was really dying out on rock radio. If and- there's
0: a if there is a rift between them and other bands. It could be because they got radio airplay freely and more easily, while other bands struggled to even get on the radio initially. And that is true of at least two or three people we've talked about. Food for thought. Very interesting
2: food for thought. But again, a rich, deep history of this band.
0: And as they went down the road uh, towards the 21st century and uh, they continued to make records, uh, Keys to the Kingdom in 91, Strange Times in 99, and they did a Christmas record called December in uh, 2003, and that's the last recorded output from the guys. I think you could say they're retired. They make it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago. I would say just in time even though we didn't get to see Ray up there with them. They cemented themselves long ago as one of the pioneers of space rock and, and progressive rock. And no matter what anybody else in any other band or any other fan of any other band thinks, they finally are getting recognized in the last 10 years by a lot of places that seem resistant for some strange reason. And maybe that's something we'll talk more about as we go forward without just pointing fingers. When it comes right down to it, Marcus, the Moody Blues fans, the Moody's are a big part of this because they've been buying the records. They've been buying the tickets. They've been going to the shows and supporting these guys in their friends' circles outside of concerts and stuff forever. And we'll continue to do so. It's kind of neat.
2: The Moody Blues fan base is remarkable, is passionate, is loyal, and seems to be one of those fan bases that changed and grew with the band, whereas you see some bands lose their bass as they age because they don't age properly with their band and their music, and the Moody Blues seemed to be able to do that and still bring in new people at the same time.
0: I think part of that's because they were always about writing songs from their perspective, even as they aged, and some of their audience aged with them, and some of their audience came on board when they renewed their interest in the Moody Blues. Got to be interested if you're going to be in a band, that's for sure. That's true. So, And you got to be interested if you're going to co-host a podcast. We've learned <laughs> that. It's good to see you in person, by the way.
2: Yeah, it's nice to see your face.
0: From the Dark Doc Studios, uh, it is The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, distributed by the Pantheon Podcast Network, and we thank them for their support. Thank you. Sponsored by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, with the cure for what ails you since 2014. And don't forget, we want to hear from you about the Moody Blues, especially you Moody's. I want to hear from you. How did we do?
2: Yes, if we missed anything, let us know.
0: Absolutely. And where can they do that?
2: They can do it by hitting our Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You can go to our Twitter page, Imbalanced Histo, or you can just email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. All great ways to get a hold of us. If you're on one of the uh, platforms like CastBox or Player FM or Spotify, please give us some stars. Give us We'd a review. Know. We'd love it. And again, any feedback, anything we missed is always appreciated. And if you want to check out a great Moody's live performance, check out their 1970 Isle of Wight performance. It was the quiet highlight of that concert
0: and on that note we're gonna let you go listen to some moody blues cds don't take the brown acid kids <laughs> and we'll catch you next time i'm ray coob
2: i'm marcus in the darkest
0: and thanks for tuning in wherever you are to the Imbalance history
1: of rock and roll